In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So in the Gospel lesson appointed for the final Sunday before Lent, in this Gospel lesson the Church lays before us this journey that we are called to take in this upcoming season. As we read in Luke 18, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. This is actually the third time in Luke's Gospel that Jesus predicts his death, but there's something different about this one. The first two predictions come in chapter 9, one right before and then one right after Jesus' transfiguration. Jesus says to his disciples first, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. And then a little later on, he reiterates, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. What's different then about this final prediction here is that Jesus prefaces it by including his disciples in this journey, and thus he implicates them in what is to come upon him. Jesus says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. I would encourage you to see the journey of Lent, now just a few days away, as the road to Jerusalem with our Lord. And really this serves as a model of not only Lent, but the Christian life as a whole, this demanding call to go up to Jerusalem, to pick up our cross, and to share with Jesus in his sufferings. Lent calls us to think about the ways in which we are either deaf or apathetic or even rebellious to this call. And then it calls us to convert, to turn from our ways and to accompany Jesus on this path. And Lent asks us to do this through the means of prayer, almsgiving, fasting, and abstinence. Sometimes we call these penances or mortifications or simply spiritual disciplines. The language is secondary. It doesn't really matter. And we don't do all this because we believe that we can earn or merit a reward. We learned that on Septuagesima. We fast rather because we recognize that there are things in our life that have the tendency to encroach upon our hearts, to try to occupy occupy that central place of our hearts. These are the things that are making us apathetic or even rebellious to go on that road up to Jerusalem. So Lent is a time for us to reorient. It's a time for us to intensify our vigilance on these encroaching things so that our hearts do not fall away from the true and ultimate good, which is God. It's important to note that we fast from good things, not from bad things. If there's something that you're doing in life currently that's bad or sinful, then the fast, that, the fast that's required for that is a permanent fast, not a Lenten fast. So we fast rather from good things because Sometimes good things, even though they are good, can still take us away from the ultimate good, which is God. 
And then in our epistle, St. Paul reminds us that we can accomplish many things spiritually. We can exercise great faith and knowledge. We can give alms. We can even be martyred. Yet, if we do these things without love, we are nothing, and they profit us nothing. As our colleague from today says, a Lord who has taught us that all our doings without charity are nothing worth. This is the perfect colic and epistle for us as we begin Lent here. Remember that you might be able to accomplish many things during Lent, but if you do so without love, it will profit you absolutely nothing. So then returning to our gospel lesson, even though this prediction seems pretty straightforward, Jesus says, I'm going to be executed and then rise from the dead. Luke notes for us that the, that the disciples understood none of these things. This has always been something that I didn't understand, at least initially. Like, what is it that they were unable to understand? Like I said, it seems pretty straightforward. But my guess is that what they couldn't understand is that how it is that the death of Jesus played a role in the larger work of the plan to restore Israel. How does the suffering Messiah bring about glory and redemption? For them at the time, by definition, if one were to die, that means that they were not the Messiah. At root, it seems to me that this is a human problem in the same way in which the disciples couldn't understand why suffering was needed in order to get to glory. We too cannot understand, we can't understand how the experience of our hardships, how the experience of our pain, plays a part and works into God's larger plan for our good. We want to have what we want, but we don't want to experience pain. We want to experience that blessedness, but we don't want to take the perhaps difficult road required to get there. It seems like in a certain way, suffering is part of the definition of life. And maybe we tend to think about this as a result of the fall. But when you stop and think about it, there was always going to be a certain pain. That is, even when you think about Adam and Eve in the garden, they were told that there was something that they could not have. So that is, there was always going to be a certain pain of faithfulness. So it seems that this has always been our calling, to persevere in this faithfulness, and that a certain suffering would accompany this faithfulness. And oftentimes it seems in the Christian life, that we fall prey to the lie, or at least we are tempted by it. The lie that says that we would simply be better off without it. We would be better off without our faith. This is indeed what the world promises. Why? I mean, for real, ask yourself the question, why be a Christian? Why not rather simply do what you want? Why be weighed down by all of those rules? Why deny yourself what you want? And here's the thing. The world does promise this. It promises a, a path in life that says you can have this, that is, you can fulfill your present desires and you'll be happy. But the reality is, is that that's stupid. It's perhaps more charitably put, it's naive. Pain is already there. 
Whether you believe in Jesus or you don't believe in Jesus, your life will be filled with pain. Don't be fooled if you choose not to go up to Jerusalem with Christ. If you choose to take a different path, you will by no means avoid pain or suffering. You will not find happiness on that other path for as much as it may promise it to you. I don't say that you wouldn't experience anything good, any sort of fun, any high emotions, because you would, certainly, but it would be fleeting, and it definitely would not be anything that would lead towards any sort of lasting contentment. Avoiding the journey up to Jerusalem simply trades one sort of pain for another sort of pain. It trades pain with hope for pain without hope, which is the worst sort of pain imaginable, what Paul refers to in 1 Thessalonians as sorrow without hope. So your sorrow is either meaningless, futile, only leading to and producing death, or it's caught up in the larger picture of God's redemption for the world, and thus it's productive and hopeful. Perhaps this is what our prayer should be during suffering, that we would receive sufficient enough grace so that our pain would not be wasted. See, Christ did not promise to remove us from pain, but rather he promised to be with us in our pain, and he promised to redeem our pain. And this is put on display for us chiefly on the cross, wherein God took the single most horrific event in the entirety of human history, the violent murder of the Son of God, and he turned it, he used that as the means through which the world would experience redemption. So this path up to Jerusalem with Jesus gives us hope that if God can not only be with Christ and bring him through that suffering, but then also use that suffering as the means of redeeming the world, well, what then might he do with our sorrow? This is the vision of faith, to never lose hope that, as Paul says in Romans, for those who love God, all things do indeed work out for good. Don't limit what God can do just because you can't see it right now, just because you don't understand how, that doesn't mean that God is unable. And we must always remember as well to imitate our Lord on this path in the midst of our suffering, who, as Peter says, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In the depths of your suffering, you still have the power to love. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. This is indeed the journey set before us this Lent, and I call you to take this path. Jesus took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.